Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White, joined today by Dr. Brian Lubers, Dr. Philip Lancaster, and Dr. Bob Larson. Good morning, guys. Hey, good morning. Morning, morning Brad. Good morning, Brad. Happy to have you with us, and happy to have you with us listening as well. As always, we're if you have questions, comments, things you'd like us to talk about, you can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu. You can also sign up there for our weekly e-blast, which, which provides some information uh, based on some of the things that we've talked about or done through our program. We also will be talking today about a little bit of a follow-up on a previous topic where we'll talk about beef calves coming from dairy cattle. And we'll address some health issues. We'll talk a little about pink eye and we'll talk a little about cow vaccinations. And we'll tie in a nutritional topic, whereas the prices of some feedstuffs have gone up. And what are the alternatives and what are the potential impacts on your operation? Before we jump into those, one of the new features that I'm, I'm pretty excited about, we'll probably have one of these about once a month. As you guys know, a big part of our, our job here at the university is teaching, but we also work with research. And Research is one of the great areas where I think we can make some contributions back to the industry by coming up with some of the applied answers. So we're going to have some students in kind of our research spotlight or our research roundup that'll come once a month. And I know you guys work with students on a daily basis. What are some of the cool things that you have seen research-wise or working on now? Well, one of the projects that we recently looked at, we looked at uh, both how to, how to predict bull fertility as early as possible. And so uh, there's certainly some challenges with doing that as, if you're a purebred producer producing bulls. Uh, and so we looked at some of that. We also looked at uh, some, some of the drivers for ultimate um, pr pr pregnancy percentage. So if I want, if, again, if I want to know, is this breeding season going to go well? What are some of the predictors uh, for herds that have much better than average uh, breed ups at the end of the breeding season. And some of those, it's, it's really not new information, but it's kind of reinforces some of the things we know, such as getting cows pregnant early means that the, the herd is fertile and is going to perform well and, and things like that. So really some good projects looking at overall herd fertility. Well, and one of the things we're looking at, Brad, is you know, I spent a lot of time in the diagnostic lab and um, got to talk to a lot of veterinarians and producers about challenges that they have with certain disease or health challenges and, and really the diagnostic aspects of those and kind of, kind of leans into what I do now with antimicrobial stewardship, where I would think, you know, one of the, one of the challenges to whether or not we use an antibiotic is do we have a particular disease we're trying to cheat, treat. Uh, so we're looking at kind of some new and maybe some more cow side tests for diagnosing bacterial diseases and cattle specifically. Well, and I think that's the, the cool thing is a lot of your, and you, you said it, Brian, I'm just going to echo it. A lot of the research that we participate in is driven by questions. So there's, there's research going on now that's been driven specifically by producer questions. And I know Philip, you've, you've focused a lot on some of the sustainability stuff. Yeah. So <clears throat> A lot of our, our focus right now is looking at different management strategies and, and management systems and how they impact sustainability overall. Um, trying to look at both the environmental and the economic components and put those together into a kind of one of the things we're looking at is trying to develop an index, so to speak, that would let us compare the overall sustainability of different management practices. 
um, and as opposed to trying to look at each of the pillars independently. Welcome to our new segment, which is Beef Research Roundup. And we're going to be talking to different folks as we go through about research that's relevant to you and your operation. First up, we've got an important issue in liver abscesses and a research team that's looking at alternatives to antimicrobial use. And we're going to learn more from Dr. Harith Sala. Dr. Harith? Hello, everybody. Good morning. Actually, I'm really happy to have me with you guys. Actually, I'm working with Dr. Amachwadi on different projects. And the most important one is uh, dealing with liver abscess. Liver abscess is, and simply, it's a condition of diseased liver due to the uh, presence of some pathogens, notably uh, living in the rumen. There are a lot of economical consequences of this condition. So generally now in the United States, there are several several uh, policies to control the situation, including using some kind of antibiotics, mainly the thylacin. So our goal now enough from our research is to find some kind of natural materials that can prevent the disease without using thylacin. We got a really promising results from using some uh, natural materials like uh, black sorghum and some other uh, plants. And we are doing, trying to find out how to uh, implement or use these materials in the field to prevent the liver disease without using the antibiotics. That's excellent. I appreciate the update because liver abscesses are, are a big issue and yeah. finding alternatives to antimicrobials is certainly an active field of research. And we look forward to hearing back from you when, when you've had some more clinical trials. Thanks, Dr. Heff. Sure. You're welcome. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think that's all good. To, and we're, and we're going to hear more. So we're going to keep those uh, coming, especially with some input from the, from the students on what they're actually working on. But I wanted to, wanted to follow up. When we had Dr. Fike on previous episode, we talked about beef calves from dairy cattle. And Brian, you've got some experience in this area. Tell us, how much has this changed over, let's say, the past five years? Yeah, actually a lot, Brad. And and that conversation came out of, you know, we were specifically, we were, we we're talking a lot about sex semen. And so, you know, you think about in the dairy industry, uh, the primary product we're trying to produce is milk. But in order to do that, we have to have a calf. And so uh, within a dairy operation, they have to have enough heifer calves to replace the turnover of the lactating cows, right? So we have to have enough replacement heifers. So we want some females coming out of those pregnancies. But once we reach that point, then really calves become a, they become a beef byproduct of the dairy system. And so what, what a lot of dairy operations are starting to do is, is they manage that replacement heifer uh, beef calf percentage very closely. And so once they have enough replacements or the right kind of replacement heifers, um, they will actually start using male sexed beef semen in their cows. And so that the calves produced from those pregnancies 
become more efficient for the beef operation they're going. So uh, instead of having a, a Holstein bull in a feed yard, which we know isn't a very efficient system, we can do it, but it's not very efficient. Um, we can actually produce a beef dairy cross calf that is more efficient for that feed for a feeding system down the road. And it's really the technology that's unlocked that key. Right. Right. So that sex semen has allowed that allowed that to be possible. And I know thinking about how that's managed and you talk about the efficiency, that plays right in with some of the sustainability stuff you were talking about, Philip. Yeah. So from a sustainability standpoint, it actually is it's pretty neat. The that system improves the sustainability of our beef supply chain. Number one, like Brian said, because those beef dairy cross calves are more efficient in the feedlot. But also, we're diluting the maintenance requirements of that cow. So we're getting two products out of that cow, the maintenance that she, requirements that she has, both milk and a high-quality beef calf. And so that is improving the sustainability of our system because it's reducing the amount of resources used to maintain the, the cow that produces that beef. So the nutritional inputs to her you can you can kind of spread out that cost over both the milk and the calf that comes yeah, out anytime and, we can get two outputs out of that system of out of a system it makes it more efficient yeah absolutely one of the other interesting things that has kind of arisen as this and, and again this has changed pretty rapidly within the last few years is there's enough um information and enough interest in these beef on dairy um matings that it's opened up kind of a new area of research in that when we think about genetic selection for, you know, which bulls to breed to which cows in the dairy industry, it was all about which, you know, milk Holstein bulls to breed to which Holstein cows. And in the beef industry is which beef bulls to breed to which beef cows. And what they found was um, you, you need to actually ask a third question, which is which beef bull to, ma to mate to which dairy cow to get this optimum uh, beef dairy cross. And it's not necessarily the same bulls that would be the best bulls to use on the beef cows. And, and so that's really opened up a whole new area of interest and research on picking the best sires to really maximize this system. Because it's, it's a different system. And I'll go back to that technology that we just talked about, the sex semen process and and carol was telling us doesn't work exactly the same on all bulls so you have to be sure that you've got a bull that will apply well in that system so i think that's a that's going to be continue to grow and we've certainly seen a rapid change over the last several years in the number of those calves and makes a big difference from an industry standpoint so we'll keep keep our eye on that and speaking of keeping your eye on things it's that time of year that we do have some eye issues, sometimes in calves, sometimes in cows, and it's pink eye. One of the one of the most frustrating yet easily spottable diseases that we get is pink eye in the cow-calf herd is where I want to visit about what, what we should do. And I want to get you guys' opinion because pink eye, a lot of times we'll see that irritated, inflamed, painful eye. They're blinking, they're tearing. You may be able to see them from across the pasture. So what do you guys, what do, you guys do to manage pink eye? And, and I want to think of manage in terms of prevention. Yeah. And I, I wish we had more and more tools and more effective tools. But some of the things that we really 
target our controlling face flies. Uh, we think that face flies can, can move the organism and cause it to you know, infect more calves. And so a good face, face fly control, um, which can be different than the control for horn flies. You know, when you see a lot of flies on a cow, uh, that's horn flies. And sometimes the best uh, treatment method to control horn flies may not work as well on face flies. And there's usually just a few face flies on an animal, uh, but those few face flies can cause a problem. So you got to get the insecticide on the face of the calf and it's got to be applied frequently. And so ear tags or, or um, wipes or something like that, that get, gets that insecticide on the calf's face frequently uh, does help. Some of the feed through uh, larvicides and stuff can, can also help with face flies a little bit. Uh, but again, face flies, and let me let me distinguish because you're making a, a distinction here. Face flies, a little bit bigger, and mm -hmm. as the name implies, live on the face. Yeah. Horn flies, and and a lot of face flies, ten to fifteen. Oh yeah, that would be a lot. Horn horn flies, smaller, and as the name implies, typically live on the sides of the cattle, <laughs> not anywhere near the horns. Not anywhere right? near the horns. <laughs> Yeah. Right. So it's 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 a and little deeper implication with the name and there'll be hundreds of them. So a lot of horn. So when you look at the cattle, most times if there's the flies on their sides that you see kind of fly up as they're moving around, those are horn flies and they'll stay on the cattle most of the time. Whereas the face flies are, are going to live off the cattle a fair amount. Is that yeah, accurate, Bob? That's exactly right. And that's, that's one of the reasons why they're a little bit harder to deal with is uh, they're not around our insecticides as much. They spend most of their time away from the animals. Uh, and so it just makes it uh, more challenging in a lot of ways. But, but face flies can carry some of the organisms that we think contribute to pink eye and move calf to calf. So fly yeah. control is one component. Ryan, what's what's in your tool bag for this? Uh, I, I'm with Bob. I, I, you know, we talk about preventing pink eye and you just we just don't have good tools and you know what we know pink eye any sort of irritation to the surface of the eye um, can predispose animals to developing pink eye and so most of the other things that we talk about there just aren't good practical things that we can do so you know sunlight tall grass anything that's irritating the surface of the eye but those are just things we we can't control. So I'm with Bob. Really, I think the primary tool we have as producers and veterinarians is is controlling the the flies that can both irritate the eye, but also serve as a, a vector of the organism. So they can move the organism around from calf to calf. So it's not necessarily about preventing a case of pink eye. It's about controlling it within a herd. So that. Like I said the tool the tool bag we have for this one just isn't deep, uh, and really what we get to is a point where, you know, prevention is is minimal or in, impractical in a lot of cases. So we go we get to treatment, which is pretty standard. You know, it's a bacterial infection. Uh, we have a couple antimicrobials that are labeled for treating pink eye. Um, we use those generally pretty effectively, uh, but if they're not working, then we we dig a little deeper into the bag and try to figure out why those tools don't work. Yeah. And I like, I like the way you said that, Brian is this, this is pink eye. And I said at the top, Oh yeah, you can see that it's pink eye, but it's not all the same. And there may be an inciting cause. And if it's not behaving the way you think it should, it's time for further investigation. That's, and that's what you're, that's what you're saying, Brian. 
Yep, absolutely. Like, like I said, generally the the two drugs we have to treat pink eye work fairly well, and so I would uh, the large majority of cases we have pink eye in our herd, we treat it, it gets better, and we we go on. Um, but but there are those situations, and, and again, I don't have a good estimate because we see the situations where things didn't work right. Um, but but if it's not working like you expect. Uh, it's probably time to have a chat with your veterinarian about what we can do to investigate. Either it's a, either it's not pink eye, it's something completely different, um, or it's a, a different infectious agent. And there are a couple bacteria. We used to think pink eye was was solely caused by by one bacteria. Um, now there are some new ones that people are investigating that may or may not either be the cause or at least contribute to pink eye as a disease syndrome. And if they're present, we want to know, and we, we may need to switch our antimicrobial therapy. Yeah. And, you know, I think the other point that to make there, Brian, is the earlier we catch those, the better off our treatment options will be. And pink eye is one of those things that can progress really, really rapidly. Um, but the earlier we catch it, the better our treatment will be. So keep an eye on, out for that this year in your, in your herd and get that early treatment. If they don't respond, uh, try to try to figure out if there's something else that's going on. And I, and I want to switch topics and, and Philip, I want to, I wanted to ask you, cause you actually brought this up and w- we've seen, and we've talked a, a couple of times with Dustin related to the changes in feed prices this year, and especially related to corn and how that price has gone up. And so there's been some discussions and actually some questions related to well, what if that was replaced with something like wheat? What are the implications for growing cattle if we replace uh, at least a portion or a big portion of the corn with wheat in their diet? So, yeah, so you know, we, we think about the, the reason for having that corn in, in that diet is high energy feedstuff and wheat is right along there with it. It's got a high starch content. Um, that we can use in a diet to add a lot of energy. The, the big difference though between wheat and corn is the uh, rate of fermentation of that starch. So in a, in a wheat kernel, the starch granules are um, a little bit different. They're not quite as dense and the protein matrix that they're um, packed in is, is different. And so the digestion or the fermentation of that starch from wheat in the rumen is much more rapid than corn. And so we have issues and, and higher potential for acidosis by feeding wheat in the ration. Um, and, and so there's some, there's some recommendations um, out there that, you know, probably limit wheat in the ration to 30 to 40% and don't go, don't go above 40. Um, and, and some of the, it depends on the type of wheat too, whether it's hard red wheat or whether it's durum um, wheat and, and or soft wheat. So you got um, to think about that too, because again, the fermentation rate is different between those two types of wheat. Absolutely. And I think the signs that we might see of acidosis, what, what would you expect to see, Bob, if, if we had some acidosis popping up? Well, in, in calves that have some acidosis, some of the first signs you see are maybe they'll back off feed. And if you're really watching intake, uh, also the, the manure, the, the, the texture, the, how, 
it, it tends to be looser, it tends to have a distinctive smell. Uh, and so really we monitor both ends of the cattle. Uh, we're monitoring their intake at the front end and we're monitoring uh, the manure, the consistency of the manure on the back end and really looking for kind of early indications that maybe that calf isn't doing well. Always, always be watching manure, right? Yeah. Manure is always <laughs> something good to keep your, to keep your eye on. And because it, it, it really does, is. And I'm, I'm, I may sound like I'm joking, but I think uh, that's just a good practice. Always be watching manure. It, that's really true. So <laughs> it tells you, it tells you a lot. And I think, I think that's one of the things that, again, as we monitor the cattle with any dietary change, and we talked about one specific one here, but you know, it's something to keep an eye for acidosis, even if we're feeding just a corn diet, right, Philip? Is that also an issue? Oh yeah, especially when we're transitioning those animals from a higher roughage diet to that a high grain type diet. That's that's why we have to transition them. We can't just go from high roughage to a high grain in one day because that rumen has to adapt or those microbes in the rumen have to adapt to that different from, uh, substrate. And so we have to do that gradually over time to prevent a, a uh, large production of, of uh, acids in the rumen and uh, particularly lactic acid that, that causes uh, that acidosis syndrome. Yep, absolutely. And, and I think that's those smooth transitions are important. And even if I think I've got a smooth transition, always be watching manure. So the, as we shift topics here a little bit, uh, I wanted to talk about, we had a great listener question. And the question was gen general recommendations for vaccinations for the cows. And so we're gonna talk about on the cow side, we're not gonna talk about on the calf side. And I'll preface it by saying, we know across regions of the country, vaccine programs are different. There are some different endemic disease or different diseases that are present in each area. There are some different um, things that you need to watch for in other regions of the country. So we're not gonna have a vaccination program that will necessarily apply to your herd. Work with your veterinarian to come up with the vaccination program. All that said as a preface, I'm gonna put you guys on the spot with some pretty specific questions related to what you think about vaccinating cows. So in general terms, when we think about diseases, what are the types of diseases that you're most concerned about in adult cows that you wanna prevent with the vaccination program? Yeah, the, the main type of disease that we're worried about in adult animals uh, or adult females is abortion-causing diseases. And so that's a fairly short list of abortion-causing diseases that we have vaccines against. That would be the viruses, IVR virus, infectious bovine rhinotracheitis, or IVR, and BVD, bovine viral diarrhea virus. Um, both of those two viruses can cause abortion in cows, and they're, and they're common enough that we as veterinarians certainly see some herds that, that have abortions due to those, those viruses. And there's also a couple of bacteria that can also cause some abortions, uh, lepto, leptospirosis, and vibrio. Um, and so, and we have vaccines for all four of those uh, germs that can cause abortions. And so those tend to be the focus for my cow, my adult cow uh, vaccination program. And, but really, even though that's my focus as an adult, as an adult cow, the vaccine program, in my opinion, is really set by the foundation we build when they're a heifer. Uh, much like um, as you get ready to send 
kids to kindergarten, uh, they go through a series of vaccines so that they are prepared as a young animal. And then after that, we as adults basically just get, you know, occasional boosters once in a while. That's similar to what we talk about with, with cattle, uh, that probably several doses over several months prior to their first pregnancy, uh, again, against IDR, BVD, Lepto, and Vibrio, really is important to set the foundation. And if we've done that well, then these annual boosters after that um, are sufficient for most cow herds, you know, unless they're really under a lot of exposure. And that, and the reason I say that is, oh, maybe the optimum timing would be right before the start of the breeding season. But that's not always convenient. Maybe it's more convenient for me to do this at preg check time. And it's my opinion that if we've set a good foundation when they're young, uh, we can we can lean towards what is convenient and possible um, as far as the booster vaccines. And it may not be the ideal, but it's good enough for most cow herds if you've set a good foundation when they're young. Okay, so two things. You're talking about the pathogens and then the timing. And let's let me follow up on the pathogens. So you mentioned a couple of viruses, IBR and BVD. You mentioned a couple bacteria. Brian, is there anything you'd add to that list or subtract from Bob's list? So the the question asked about general recommendations, and you know, I I think when it comes from a veterinarian perspective, when it comes to developing vaccine programs, um, they're they're really important when they're the vaccines are really important when they're really important, meaning. It's you can't predict what disease challenge is coming. And so I, I think as a profession, I think we do tend to over vaccinate. But I also understand the risk we take if we don't vaccinate. Right. And so, you know, the one <clears throat> the one that Bob didn't mention, and I I don't know that I necessarily advocate for or against, but we talk about clostridial vaccines in older cows. Right. And and if you go to to look at any herd vaccination program, a lot of them will include a clostridial vaccine. And I think we would generally the consensus among the panel here, and I don't want to put any words in anybody's mouth, is we probably don't need to do that every year in adult cows. But if somebody experiences a clostridial outbreak and loses one adult cow from a clostridial disease, we could have bought a lot of clostridial vaccine. And so um, I, I think, I'll just say, I think sitting down with a veterinarian and having those specific discussions about each and every vaccine in your protocol is really important. And we, we do tend to, you know, you can over-vaccinate. There are risks with vaccines. They, you know, some of them carry endotoxin. And so you can see, you can see a lot uh, you can see vaccine reactions and those reactions can kill animals too. So there is, there is a downside to vaccines. And I think we need to talk about that, but we need to, we need to see, you know, what, what level of protection do we want in our specific herd is really the important point. Yeah. Yeah. And so some of the, some of the clostridial diseases that, that you mentioned there, Brian, we may refer to that as black leg, even though there are multiple pathogens in there and black leg itself is usually not what we, we think about in cows. And that's a bacteria. I think what, and I may, I agree with what you're saying. It's kind of specific to each 
heard. The analogy that some folks have used is, is vaccines are kind of like insurance. You don't know if you're going to need it or not need it, and you want to cover some of that risk. I think the analogy as you think about identifying what vaccines your herd uses, this is, we talked about uh, different drivers the other week, and the insurance program for teenage boy drivers is not the same as the insurance program for older adults. And having just ridden with some of my boys, I think rightfully so. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, I, I think it makes perfect sense that there that... Are, that there are risky behaviors yeah. and non-risky behaviors in both. There drivers. are cars with two mirrors and cars with one mirror. Right? I'm just, I'm not, I hope I haven't said too much. And I think, yeah. well, I think to complete your analogy, there are herds with a lot of disease challenge and herds without. And so I think just, just to say you should always, I agree with Bob. I think in adult cows, reproductive vaccines are probably the most important, but there are herds where it's definitely prudent to, to include some of these other pathogens because of the history they have in that specific operation. The history, history and, or the region. Okay. So yeah. that's the, that's the pathogens. Uh, the timing, I thought you stated it well, Bob, that typically once a year and in many herds that can be pre-breeding or a lot of times preg check, depending on when your herd is calving during the year. And that can be convenience based if we're just doing general prevention, but there may be a specific pathogen or disease that I'm looking to cover that I may recommend, okay, you do it pre-breeding and you do it at preg check. So I, I think timing there falls into kind of our same which pathogens. So hopefully this was helpful. And I think that's a great question because everybody has it. And it's good to just talk in, in general terms, but, but as Brian mentioned, this would be a good one to go talk to your veterinarian and really find out what's the, what's the right answer for your herd. And we, we have appreciated you joining us today. We always enjoy those listener questions. So if you've got one for us, you can always reach out to us and send us a question at bci at ksu.edu.